Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Grace Riddell is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in the Washington, D.C. metro area. She helps queer clients in recovery by examining and healing from family of origin issues. Her practice enables individuals, couples, and groups to uncover the core symptoms of codependency. Self-care, boundaries, immoderation, needs and wants, and owning one's own reality. And Barry McNinch, as a child, always had the drive to help others, which led to his desire to go into healthcare, focusing on mental health. While Barry grew up in rural eastern North Carolina, he had the opportunity to shadow under different mental health care professionals at all care levels. During this experience, he witnessed a disconnection between the clients and access to appropriate clinical services. Identifying these underserved populations, Barry observed how they navigated obstacles created from the societal stigmas towards identifying the need for mental health services. From this moment, Barry gained a passion for developing and connecting people with quality services while educating people on the necessity of mental health advocacy. Throughout his education and professional career, Barry has experience with program development, program operations, and clinical outreach. He also had the opportunity to collaborate on a startup team that developed intensive outpatient programs and partial hospitalization programs. Clinically, he specializes in serving the LGBTQIA, substance abuse disorder, and eating disorder communities also in the Washington, D.C. metro area. So welcome, Grace and Barry. It's always fun to have a bi-coastal experience, and I'm, I'm always excited to uh, have a chance to dialogue with someone I've known for many years, but uh, really haven't had the chance to go in depth with some of what your practice means to you and how it's developed through the years. And And Grace and I have known each other through the American Group Psychotherapy Association for many years, and I'm just meeting Barry for the first time. And I'm just so glad to have you both with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. So just to start with the basics, Grace, what 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 is the definition of being codependent? Well, you know, I think the other big connection that Andrew and I have, I have to say, Andrew, is I think we have a love for Pia Melody and her whole concept of underneath every addict is a raging codependent and underneath codependence is abuse and neglect, dysfunction, which leaves people feeling no sense of self-worth. So that's where it all starts, right? Filling up the hole. 
So codependence actually dates back to back in the day um, when we used to talk about the addict being addicted to a substance, that the family member was addicted to the addict needing that person, the caregiver. And um, it became clear that the alcoholic who depended on alcohol to handle overwhelming feelings of their disease, the family depended on the alcoholic in a sick and similarly addictive way. In other words, the alcoholic and codependent were trying to solve identical basic symptoms of the same disease, the addict with alcohol or drugs and the codependent with the addictive relationship. So that's, that's the, that's how I define it. <laughs> um, there's some other items I'd like to mention later, but I'll let Barry go ahead and talk about what his definition is from the intergenerational perspective of a millennial. Thank you. Well, similar to your experience, because um, not your experience, but what you shared there in your dialogue, it's just a codependency relation that can either be positive or negative, whether it's the person looking out or the person looking. And so that's very similar from my perspective. And not to be short, but it's very similar. I don't want to reiterate, but it's very similar. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that um, when I see a client with any kind of a compulsive or addictive behavior, we do try to get into family of origin issues, not right away, but pretty close to the beginning. And it, it's kind of hard to break in because people have a lot of defenses around that, around vulnerability, et cetera. So Pia Melody's concept of a precious child, I think, fits right in with looking at a child as being valuable, vulnerable, imperfect, dependent, and immature. So consequently, the five core symptoms of codependence are people having difficulty experiencing an appropriate level of self-esteem, um, difficulty setting functional boundaries, which is really about protecting and containing, and difficulty owning your own reality, which is more about imperfections and looking at your body, your thinking and your behavior, difficulty acknowledging your needs and wants and difficulty experiencing and expressing your reality moderately. So consequently, if you have an addictive behavior, it's gonna be immoderate usually. But these are the things that um, in one of the groups I run, it's called um, escaping codependence. And this was, <laughs> The idea was my millennial virtual secretary, who's really great at helping me shed some light on maybe new ways of looking at codependence. So um, people in my group, it's a mixed gender group, and um, it's um, very interesting to hear people's perception of what their needs and wants are and what their difficulty of experiencing self-esteem issues. Anyway, basically, we talk about all these issues in my group, and they do keep popping up, but I'm interested in hearing Barry's side of this. Well, I mean, just from my experience, obviously working within the substance use population and also having the experience of working with the eating disorder population, pulling that together, also working with the LGBTQI population, like you codependency appears in so many different ways. Um, 
especially, and I want to hone in a little bit on the LGBTQI population, because this is a population which I know, Grace, you've shared your experience of coming out and like what it was like to be young and a lot or in, in the community. And also my experience, very different. And, but one thing that's held similar that I've seen from my experience, I'll granted everyone's is a little bit different, but it's like the different mask that LGBTQI person wears throughout their life. Like the mask they wear before they come out, when they come out, but also when they're out of working towards that place where they can truly be their authentic self. So, and I feel like wearing those different masks, we kind of build those different relationships and identity issues. And through those identity developments, we're building different codependent behaviors. And I, I, I'm, and I feel like you've seen that through your practice as well. I have. And in fact, um, way back in the day, like, before you were born in the 80s, there was a wonderful article about being codependent and being gay or lesbian. And it was written by uh, Dana Finnegan and Emily, can't remember Emily's last name right now, but um, it was really wonderful because it was just about what you're talking about. So when you said that to me, I thought, wow, it's still an issue. And here we are with masks on, I mean, Masks have such a strange um, <laughs> kind of connotation for different kinds of folks. Just to piggyback, I'm speaking from my experience of like how I had to wear different masks. Um, I have friends who came out, like for example, I came out at 13 and navigating that was very interesting being in the rural South. But I've also had friends who have very progressive liberal parents where um, they came out and their parents were like, we're having a celebration. And I look at that and I'm like, those experiences form our attachments because like we're dealing with like fear, we're dealing with excitement, we're dealing with rejection, we're dealing with acceptance. So all of those tie into our person or our personality developments. And actually Barry, uh, Barry and I got in this conversation because I was telling him about reading Andrew's book <laughs> and about the example of the fellow who is exactly like so many of my clients who grew up feeling neglected from their parents and they would come straight home from school and just start watching porn. And then they got addicted really to the porn over uh, many decades. And I have so many clients like this who during this pandemic and feeling isolated, I think this is all coming back to haunt them. And yet when I was talking with Barry about it, he didn't quite get the fact that the guy couldn't, I said, you know, maybe the guy didn't go play football with his friends because he couldn't and he couldn't come out. So it was all a big secret. Barry was like, what? <laughs> it wasn't a secret for you. <laughs> it's interesting. There's always that joke when I came out, I fell into my mother's heels. Uh, but it's just tying that in. Again, when Grace did tell me that, like from a therapeutic standpoint, I looked at it, I was like, oh, that makes sense because the client you said was it during the time when being gay was not okay socially. And for example, when I came out, the first people I came out, it's I, I look back at it. I had like, it was me and like seven other girls. It was like our, our little squad of friends. And that's who I really confided in first. And when, Jer when um, Grace was telling her experience of this, person didn't come out, they went home, they dealt with it, they were watching pornography. I was like, wait a minute, 
like I didn't do like it was, I, 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 looked, I reflected a little bit. I was like, I went out with my friend, my female friends, and we would go walking and like sit by the water. And then I was like, oh wait a minute, not everybody has that support system. And I have to look back at that and reflect and say how grateful I am. Not grateful, but just I had that where some people don't have it. Right, you had that love to fall into, which not everybody has, unfortunately. You know, I also wanted to say something about codependency because, in some ways, aren't we all codependent to a certain degree? I mean, for instance, you know, one way that I think of codependency is that it has to do with rescuing, saving, enabling, or caretaking. Many times, multiple things. And, and from a heart space, oftentimes codependency has intentions that are very positive, mm-hmm. but they get distorted, right? They get somehow turned into something that becomes mm-hmm. problematic and, and, and really doesn't serve anybody very well. But I actually, I, I just wanted to mention um, Rob Weiss's mm-hmm. recent book, Prodependence, <laughs> yeah. because he focuses mm-hmm. so clearly on effective boundaries and effective self-care. And I thought that was a really lovely way of, of putting together this idea that it's it's not something that is a life sentence. It's something that we can actually hold as a survival strategy and to understand that there's ways of, of building awareness and strategies to relate differently to oneself and to others. I mean, what would yeah. you guys say about that? Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up. Because as a matter of fact, in my codependence group, um, we were talking about the pandemics going on simultaneously all around us and how people were feeling frustrated and like they didn't know what they could do. And so one of the youngest members spoke up and said, well, I want to try to be full of more loving kindness. And I want to be more open hearted. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting from a person who's working on their codependence? <laughs> so, um, I appreciate your talking about Rob Weiss's book and his whole idea, which is, of course, more true. And, and I hope that people who think that they might be codependent don't, don't stop being generous of heart. Absolutely. And I, I love the the words loving kindness and open heartedness because that's the therapeutic di- direction. Yeah. For exactly. all of us, really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let, let's talk for a moment because, because we are talking about the LGBTQI population and we're talking about recovery and codependency. What, what does queer really mean to each of you? Well, of course, for me... Uh, as a baby boomer, it was a bad word, right? We're queer, we're here, and we can spell potatoes. I remember marching in front of the, the White House. Well, I think that was actually Dan Quayle. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, it was not a good word. So it's been hard for me to sort of hear it and let it fall softly on me. But I'd like to hear from the younger guy down there. <laughs> Well, I definitely, growing up, again, I grew up in the rural area of the South. Um, I heard it often because my family was Southern Baptist. And I'm not saying we heard it in church, but a lot of them would speak under their breath like, oh, he's queer. And um, it was it had a lot of negative, deep-seatedness. But it wasn't until I went to college when I saw the 
I don't want to call it the, the, the current LGBTQIA movement of inclusivity. It was a word that I saw was being taken back and given power of positive connotation. And it was all encompassing. It was an umbrella. And that's where it really truly opened my eyes of like, queer is a word that each of us have a different meaning to it. And I actually, it's interesting. I actually consulted or connected one of my friends, Becky Cohen, who does a lot of LGBTQ um, talks on informing programs and practitioners about appropriate pronouns for the trans population and like just having informed care in the continuum. And I was talking with Beck about this and I was like, Beck, what does, what does this mean to you? And um, he was like, well, what does it mean to you? And I was like, well, reflecting on it, because it's one of those things like when you ask a question, you never expect somebody to like immediately, well, what does it mean to you? And when I thought of queer, I just thought it's a term that we're taking back. We're giving a positive meaning. Um, we are, when I think of queer, I think of it's all encompassing. So it could be a person who is trans. It could be a person who's non-binary. It could be a person who's pansexual. And then it, again, like there's so many ways you can break it down. You could be a gay male who has androgynous flair and you wear want to wear like, I don't know, like fun hats or like makeup. I mean, that's queer. Queer is a community that's all accepting and embracing. So it was funny because when Grace asked me that, I was like, it is negative, but I have like chosen to take it back. Now, granted, still day to day, I hear people using negative undertones, but it's one of those things where I'm going to push forward and keep make it positive. I've adopted it too, <laughs> because I've been running what we used to call the lesbian group. <laughs> it's no longer a lesbian group. <laughs> it is, you know, people change right in the middle of the group. I mean, I've had one person um, admit that they were trans and they, they came out, they haven't come out yet, but they are certainly heading in that direction. And um, so I'm going with the flow. I call it my queer queer women's group. I'm curious to know, Grace, yeah. how does that make you feel? Because like you, and again, I hate that's such a therapeutic question, but like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just curious, like, because you had those negative I'll emotions. tell you what it makes me feel like. It makes me feel like I wish I had been born when you were born, because I think a lot of people who are gay, whether they're gay, lesbian, whatever, I mean, we were actually, I can remember saying, oh, I'm not gay, I'm bisexual. And um, so we went through that period for a long period of time. And then people would say, well, you know, you're selling out if you're calling yourself bisexual. You're not really being true to yourself. But now we're sort of back at the same loop of you fall in love with the person for the person, not because of whatever gender you are or whatever sexual orientation you are. You just are more open to whomever. That's the way the baby boomers started. I'm chiming in on that. <laughs> it was, it's interesting because um, I also was one of those people who first came out as bisexual because in my community it was easier to be bisexual than it was gay. And looking back at it, it's like I regret doing that because... I feel like there's a lot of stigma towards the bisexual population where it's like, oh, it's just a stepping stone when in actuality, it's a true identity. So like looking back, I, I had a similar experience. Yeah, we'll see where things take us. <laughs> right. I mean, I find it very exciting. I, I'm with you, Grace. I do have a little bit of envy of how big the container is nowadays for for queerness. 
And one thing that I wanted to make sure our listening audience understood, because they don't get to see us, they get to hear us, is that Grace and I are baby boomers. So we're from a particular generation. And Barry, what would you call your your particular I fall in uh, the millennial generation the millennial bracket? <laughs> okay, elder millennial, I suppose. So we're a, a few, few decades. decades, yeah, exactly, a few decades from one another, and and I think the intergenerational differences are very rich because it it speaks to the evolution of how far we've come. And and being with you today, Barry, it reminds me about where Grace and I were. I, I, I basically was a kid in the 70s and 80s, and it was a challenging time. You know, I, I can't even imagine the generation before us in the 50s and 60s, let's say. But but either way, it's just it's just it's wonderful to have the opportunity to to look at the differences and to understand how far we've come and how far we have to go very still. True. Very true. Yeah. So we are having this discussion in month seven of the pandemic. And as we know, it affects all of us differently and it affects our clients differently and it affects codependent folks differently and it, it affects folks in recovery from addiction. So I'm just wondering if we can open up a little bit of a conversation around what your lens has been on on all of that in whatever shape or form you'd like to comment on it. Well, as a practitioner, I'll just say this happened today. Um, I got a referral for a case in New Jersey. And so since I do Zoom, I could probably see that person until someone who's a higher up, I don't know who it would be, would tell me I can't do it. So then I ended up getting another email from this person who said, well, sometimes the client is in town. So could you do a hybrid of seeing them in person when they're in town and seeing them on Zoom when they're out of town in New Jersey or wherever? And I'm thinking, this is really crazy. I haven't even met the person yet. And I'm supposed to be, I don't necessarily, I haven't seen anybody in person since March. So um, and then I feel like, well, I'm going to have to come out about my partner because she's in a uh, susceptible group. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have to tell anybody anything, really. But it's it, it involves my office there where I've been for 32 years. And am I going to give up my office now? Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen. As far as it affecting my clients, I'd have to say that... Um, and Barry and I were talking about this earlier. I have a, a woman in my queer women's group who wants to leave the group. She's a real extrovert and she hasn't been able to go into the office since March. She looks like she's literally just shriveled up into a prune. It's just like this extroverted person has no energy around her to draw from. So um, she is saying that, you know, the group was saying, well, you seem so much more withdrawn than when you first started the group and so much more so during the pandemic. And she said, cause she's, she's from the middle East. She's been through a lot of trauma, um, politically. And so she said, I think I'm frozen. And I thought that's exactly what it is. 
And the whole group is getting to be, it's like one by one, people are withdrawing more. And just like the New York Times article on being socially awkward is happening to everybody. I think my group is going through that experience and thank God we're talking about it. I feel like with Grace um, from groups I've ran, it's like I'm seeing polyvagal theory 101 happening where it's like people are going like their Vegas, again, we're neurophysi neurophysiologically de or developed as mammals to thrive on connection. And I'm, I've had clients who were resilient people who were extroverts and switching over to this digital platform, work, therapy, group, like everything is digital and you're seeing people revert back to that reptilian brain. And I don't want to call it backsliding, but like sliding backwards and like similar to your client, Grace, where she's um, shriveling up. It's just people aren't thriving. They're not getting their outlets, the connections that really fed their um, vagus nerve, truly. <laughs> like it's because that's our root <laughs> yes. of trauma. Yeah. So I think a lot of people would turn to whatever substance they use, you know, whether it's food or alcohol, sex or whatever. So what I'm hearing is there's actually more vulnerability for regression, of course, but there's also more vulnerability for relapse. And even if somebody freezes, it, it may be an opportunity for them to look at a part of themselves that they haven't seen in quite this way ever before, or maybe they haven't seen it in a long time, but hopefully for us to be witness to it and to, to hold them um, kind of like you were saying, Barry, that, that we are biologically wired for connection. And if people are able to show up for group, even in the midst of the pandemic and, and feeling all kinds of PTSD and whatnot, um, hopefully there's, there's the healing properties of being together and knowing that you're not completely alone. I think that that's the power of group. Being in right now of all times, group is so important, I think, in our society. Small, small little cells of people who are different, who can exchange ideas and be different and still get along. I mean, <laughs> it's sort of like peace begins at home and peace begins in, in my office or on Zoom. Um, it's really becoming uh, so apparent that if we don't mend our ways, we're going to self-destruct, I think. We're alluding to the idea of, of navigating relationships. And right now, maybe more than ever, it's, it's a matter of navigating our relationship with ourselves, number one, but finding ways of, of bridging to others. And I'm wondering if you can talk about navigating relationships, if, if you want to share something personal or something with your clients, because I know it's been a corona coaster, <laughs> as I as I have learned to call it, at where at times I'm feeling more connected and more willing and more energy to, to connect, and other times where I just want to hibernate. I'm glad you mentioned about having a relationship with yourself, because as Pia Melody would say, the definition of codependence is having a bad relationship with yourself. And I think um, that's where it starts for all of us, right? Every day when we get up and take our first um, cup of coffee or big morning yawn. Um, so I think navigating relationships for me means 
how, because I'm with people and kind of serving people all day, my big deal is where do I get my well filled up? How do I get filled up? You know, where, where are my sources of, of oil, so to speak? Where, where do I get my nourishment, my nurturance? And certainly having a puppy helps. A puppy is probably one of the best <laughs> for, sources of emotional nourishment. You and I both have the same kind of bent in life, I believe, that we do believe there is something bigger than ourselves. And I think that something bigger than ourselves is trying to tell us something. <laughs> and I think we're, we're going to be listening because it's always moving and shaking. I think spirit is always moving in a positive way. I'm just definitely agreeing because, again, it, it's this Corona coaster. I like that term you used. Um, it's making us really reevaluate what our supports are. And because whereas before, like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with friends. I'm going to go for a run like our supports are very different and we're navigating our relationships we're navigating our lives in uncharted waters so just finding those outlets to really fill our cup are really important so just reiterating what grace is saying i, I like again i like that term corona coaster and how we're refilling our cup I'm gonna steal that <laughs> i was going to say before that i i really hope that our time together today can be a form of emotional nourishment because sometimes when we're sitting in front of the screen all day, seeing clients, leading groups, et cetera, it's one thing, but, but this is a little different energy. We get to have this conversation. And I know as I sit here, I'm feeling stimulated and, and interested. And of course, with you, Grace, there's, we have history together. So there's a warm fuzzy that goes along with that as well. And. Um, before I forget, I wanted to come back to Pia Melody because I'm not sure all of our uh, listening audience ha knows who, who Pia is. And um, in a nutshell, and you could add to this, Grace, but Pia Melody was with the Meadows for 30 plus years and actually longer, I believe, and, and developed a relational model that they used uh, at the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona for decades. And it's really a gold standard of understanding childhood patterns and working on ways to, to create more functional relationships. She calls it the functional adult. And um, although Pia is retired at this point, I know she does a little consulting and she I know for me has been a big influence because I spent a week training with her and was just so inspired with what she had to share. I came out of there a little love addicted to her, but we won't, <laughs> I had to deal with that in my own therapy. And, um, and uh, just wanted to make sure everybody knew that she's really one of the pioneers of Absolutely. codependency and love addiction. I, I, I'm a groupie too. <laughs> I still have the tattered workbook. <laughs> Uh, breaking free, and I still ask my clients to buy it on, you know, online. So uh, it still works. <laughs> I think it's the best. I say it's therapy in a book. <laughs> right. So we have a few minutes remaining. Is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Anything that you would like to emphasize or would hope might be a takeaway for them? I would just like to say. Thank you to Andrew, 
who has always been such a, a, a great leader for us, for us folks out here, the LGBTQ population, because that's actually how I did meet you. And you were extending a hand to me to include me at the AGPA uh, conference. I don't even remember if it was in LA or New Orleans or New York or somewhere. But um, I just want to thank you and also the people you've introduced me to along the way. Very inspirational, dynamic, great, great people. So I just want to thank you. Put a plug in for Andrew. <laughs> thank you, Grace. My pleasure. And I just want to say thank you to Andrew again as well for having Grace and I. And also thank you to Grace. Um, I met Grace and I just like loved her energy and her collaboration but especially within the LGBTQIA population, because one of the things we have to do is this is, again, a population where everyone's path is different and just always remembering to hold the hope for the clients we have. So thank you both for having me. Fantastic. I, I so appreciate you both being with me today. And I hope that our paths will, will, will cross sooner rather than later. And I, I'll add one little thing, which you might want to include or not. Sure. I was taking a walk with Bader, my dog, RBG Bader. Um, and we walked past a church with a sign on it that said, faith in between faith and charity is hope. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so that's sort of what we're talking about, right? Having some faith that things are going to all turn out okay through whatever we do to extend ourselves. And that's how we have hope. That's a beautiful. But you all knew that. Yeah, but that's a beautiful place to end and and to remind our listeners that that is what this is all about, really. So thank you again for being with us. And I uh, hope to see you on your coast at some point. Thank you for listening today. It was so terrific sharing this time with my very talented colleagues and friends, Grace Riddell and Barry McNinch and discussing this really vital topic that affects those affected by out-of-control sexual behavior. Please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are topics that you would like us to discuss in the future, just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.